Welcome back, kiddos, to the Mark Claire Show. This is episode number four. You can find every link you could ever possibly need, every way you can listen to the show, every way you can watch the show, every way you can support the show. You can find that all over at markclaire.com. That's Mark, M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R, markclaire.com. You can even join the Telegram group. I have a Telegram group just for people who want to talk about and support the show. Uh, That one's free. That one is not a perk for uh, subscribers, although what is a perk for subscribers are all of the episodes early and then their full completed format. What you get here on the public version is a truncated version of the interviews missing the smoke-filled room segment where we get extra wild and extra crazy, uh, as I did with my guest today, uh, my friend Lance Psycho, who is an incredible entrepreneur. I think there's just so much you're going to be able to learn from him. And with that being said... I think we're going to get right into this thing. So I'll see you at the bottom of the show. With me today, he is an entrepreneur and business owner. Uh, He is also the host of the podcast Inside the Firm, which I had the pleasure of appearing on last year. Very pleased to welcome Lance Psycho. Lance, welcome to my show. Hey, thanks for having me. I need uh, I need to catch up uh, and uh, redo our intro, man. That was uh, that was amazing. Whoever did it, I should get in touch with them. Way I, I can definitely. <laughs> I can I can definitely connect you for sure. And um, Lance, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. You know, we we first uh, came into uh, contact with each other um, during our our mutual ride, I guess you could say, through the libertarian movement. And maybe we can touch on that. Not too much. Maybe we can touch on it. Um, but what I really want to dig into today is just more of your sort of entrepreneurial journey and some of your spiritual journey. So we'll, we'll kind of touch on that and see where it goes. But I'll let you start things off and take us from wherever it makes the most sense for you. Um, maybe get into a little bit of your background and your childhood. And I, I'm not sure which is going to make sense to bring up first, sort of the, the thing with your dad or the business stuff. So just take it from, from wherever it makes sense for you. And we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Like Mark's Mark mentioned, uh, we met through uh, our stint in libertarianismville, and then we both uh, left, it seems like, in, in, in a much better place. I think we're more awake. <laughs> a lot of people think they are awake. With we're woke now. Yeah, yeah. Real woke, I guess. Um, libertarian. I got better I graphics, you know? I got better animations. Better graphics. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of LP libertarians think they are actually awake, and I think they are not. I think they're actually just in sort of some other sort of pseudo religion. Um, and this is coming from, I'm a pretty religious guy. I'm a practicing Catholic and all of that. But anyway, um, met Mark. And so I'm glad to be back on the show here. My entrepreneurial journey started uh, when I was very, very young. So um, I grew up between a cattle ranch and a sugar beet and Durham farm. So on one side of the family, they were ranchers. Sugar beet, side- is that like a Dwight, the Dwight, Dwight Troop beet farm? Or is that a different kind of beet? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know much what? about beets. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder what kind he grows. That's if he the grows only the other pur- beet farm. He, yeah, yeah I think he grows, he grows those purple ones. If he grows the purple ones, then no. So sugar beets, yeah. you can actually, sugar beets are like uh, an Eastern European thing, um, like a Russia thing. So um, a lot of those farmers th- that came over to like North Dakota, so, you know, Eastern Germany, think about like German farmers, came over and then they settled in Northwest uh, color, uh, North Dakota and then Eastern Montana. And those, those, the conditions there are much in, in that region are much like Russia. I mean, it's the, it's the tundra and essentially like how cold it gets and everything high plains, very cold. And so they were kind of perfect for growing sugar beets. So that's, that's literally what it is, but they're a big white beet. Uh, I did not expect to have to explain sugar beets today, <laughs> but here we are. Either way, grew up. It's a whole up, new show, Lance. You never yeah, know what's going to come up here. Yeah. Grew, grew up between those two families um, and my grandmother on the sugar beet side, um, she always she kind of gave me my first opportunities to make money. So, uh, it, you know, neither family was wealthy by any means. Um, and I my brother would agree with me. You know, it took him a while to kind of get him to see the light here. For some reason, he, he was convinced that we didn't grow up poor. And I go, look, man, maybe once mo- once it got to been got to be when you were a teenager, you got more than one pair of shoes per year. I go, but when when it was just me, and even when you were very, very little, and you can't remember that stuff, like when you were three or younger, there were summers where, there was one summer in particular that I'll never forget, like it just always stuck with me was, um, you remember aqua socks? Do you remember those things? People still wear them. In Florida, they've sell. I didn't wear them. I definitely didn't wear them, but I I believe I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like before Crocs. They were like the before Crocs thing. Um, but anyway, my mom bought me a pair of those and that's all I had for like spring, summer. And then eventually they like literally broke and fell apart and I had to walk home with bare feet. So I, I grew up, uh, 
I would say the lowest middle class you could probably be in North Dakota. Like by all means, we were not. And that's that's still considered middle class there at that time. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, North Dakota, you know, per capita GDP is very low. Like um, during the mid 2000s and early 2000s, late 90s, there was this big exodus of the population and the oil boom hit and then, and then they got a bunch more people and now they're kind of just kind of even with where they're at, but by no means uh, wealthy. I mean, to the tune of now, like if I put it in perspective, I remember when AOL first came out and my aunt gifted gifted me a computer. We, I had I had one rich aunt and she lived in Idaho. And I ran up a, you had to dial, like we didn't have internet way out in rural North Dakota. So you had to dial in with the old AOL. Like oh, I'm, I'm very familiar with that. Yeah, everybody could remember that sound, like the be-do-do-do, whatever. Uh, I ran up, I, I had no idea it was going to be a long distance call. I just thought like, it's the internet. So then somehow there's no long distance thing. Didn't tell my mom and dad, they just trusted me. And I ran up a bill of like a thousand dollars and you, you could have thought, I mean, this is what 1996. So I guess it was a little bit more money. Like maybe that's $2,000 in today's money, uh, something like that. Like not that giant of a difference, but it was like, I, I, I mean, yes, it was my fault. And I like, I, I shouldn't have done that, but at the end of the day, like for it to be as big of a deal it was financially to see that, I was just like they had to take out a little loan and stuff, and I was like, "What is? What kind of life is this?" Man, um, they should. Well, they should have done because my parents did this. Because I actually, I well, I, I don't want to get too deep into this, but I, <laughs> I met like I met a girl in in a chat when I was like fourteen or something, and we started a phone relationship. Mm. I didn't even know, I didn't know it was a thing. She was in the same state. I didn't even think twice about it. I'm like, phone calls are free, whatever. And then similarly, my parents came to me with this giant bill, and but they actually called the phone company and got out of it. They said, "Oh, really?" Did, that's what, that's what your parents should have done. Just saying. But anyway, I agree. They they tried. I to be fair, they oh, really? did try. I remember them trying to call, be like, "Look, it was our idiot son." <laughs> didn't work huh? but either way seeing the stress on them and then growing up in that environment where i was i felt guilty asking for anything and i mean just basic things like a, i remember my mother like cutting my hair type of thing um instead of you know going to a proper barbershop or a salon or something and getting a haircut and i have very interesting hair right i mean it's like partially because of the background uh that we'll get into about you know being mixed to the point of like half south native american half north native american then the other path a little bit white um but like this very strange sort of nappy kind of crossbreed hair and all that um so that's what drove me to uh just wanting to being being a serial entrepreneur i mean to the point where now i've even monetized fishing uh so like at every single waking minute and hour i am i am making money because I and I tell my kids this all the time is like uh, one of my favorite quotes, believe it or not, is from from like Kanye West um, and having money isn't everything, but not having it is. And it becomes that. I mean, it truly becomes that. And then it sort of ties all into, you know, me eventually finding my dad, too, and finding out that like this guy, this is how this guy operates, too. So that that's where that comes from. Mom and dad, you know, dad worked for grandma and grandpa on the sugar beet farm. And could never convince his dad he would make like a hundred bucks a day back in the day. He would only work for like five or six months out of the year, and then he would chop firewood for the rest of the year. Just it, we, we we made it fine. We did, you know there was a few times where I I do remember like going a little bit hungry. They're not being like leftovers or anything like that after supper. So sort of right on that edge of just like there was enough hunger to really drive that. Mom is still working for the same place. She works for Indian Health Service, wow. um, and she's a uh, she was a dental assistant. Um, she made okay money. I mean, just like average lower middle class type of wages. Then eventually became their secretary and stuff. But she still works there. You know, she's she's now oh, you know sixty two, I think. So she's still working there. Like these people, mom and dad, God bless them, but they are just not business driven, entrepreneurial driven. They have no idea how capital works. They have no interest in ever taking any risks in terms of like buying uh, real estate rental properties or investing in this in actual in the stock market on their own rather than just throwing it to like a boring 401k, anything like that. My brother is much the same. You know, I gave him shit last year and I said, uh, I said, look, if I like he's a professional bow hunter, not by living, but with, you know, just he, he's been on television like you could look up Lucas Psycho White Knuckle Productions. And he's been on television uh, quite a bit, of qu quite a few times on these DVDs of like hunting white-tailed deer. And his whole goal was when, like, right after graduated high school, was 
to become a professional hunter outdoorsman who gets paid to do it. Like this is his job every day. And whether that's through like how YouTubers are doing it now and kind of what I'm doing mm. where I'm making these videos and then I monetize them on YouTube or on Newsbreak or go after sponsors and stuff like that. Um, I was like, once I, once I got back into fishing a couple years ago, then I, I told him like, that's, this is, you know, this is my goal. Like, cause mom growing up, like she would tell all my girlfriends and even my wife multiple times, um, when she'd meet them like, Oh yeah. When Lance was a little boy, he always wanted to be a professional fisherman. Like he'd always write that down when the teacher said that and everything mm. like that. And I told my brother, like, if I monetize this before you, you should be ashamed. Like you're the one that was doing all of these things gung ho. You didn't even leave home because you didn't want to leave those kind of territories with all the public land that you can hunt and film and do all these things. He was doing this way before I was not the fishing side and everything. So the mom and dad ended up with a sort of this hunter and fisherman. Um, so kind of fast forward a little bit. I went to, um, I, I tried working on the farm one summer with my dad and on the sugar beet farm. And what you do there is between that and Durham, Durham is just wheat. Um, the way you irrigate them in that valley is water the you know the crops and everything is we dig these little ditches off of these bigger ditches and then uh you either use dams so like these canvases that you set in the ditches and then they dam the water up and then you scoop out like uh parts of the ditch that you dug with the tractor and then it floods it's either flood irrigation or with the sugar beets it was using these like uh, metal tubes that you siphon through and then you get them like sucking water out I lasted like a couple of days. Um, and it's not because I'm a pussy because I, I, I really, I mean, I think I'm not that doesn't kind of sound like the most exhilarating work. It was, it was terrible because you never been in a Dakota, Mark, right? I have not. Okay. If you ever go, like I do think everybody should go because it, it actually is a beautiful place on the West. I side plan to, we're, we're looking at a big road trip next, uh, next summer. So I'm, I'm planning to swing through that way. Cause I haven't been through that whole section of the U S yet. Yeah. South Dakota like, is actually beautiful. Mount Rushmore, all that stuff. Um, but when you get to North Dakota, that's the thing, like in the winter, like I said about having this, uh, similarity to like a Russian type of landscape where it's very harsh in the winter, the same thing is for the summer. So in the summer, it's like 90 degrees, 90% humidity, very, very hot, very sticky. And then the mosquitoes, people complain about mosquitoes in Colorado and I go, what mosquitoes? And they go like, how can you even be outside? I'm like, I'm outside all the time in the woods, deep in the wilderness, I'm, there's still hardly any mosquitoes. In North Dakota, they will, they will actually get you to the point where you can't do anything outside. I mean, they just swarm you like crazy. Yeah. So that's what you're up against when you're trying to irrigate these farms in the summer. Plus my dad and I, my dad and I, who, my dad who raised me, um, it, who is now, come to find out, not my biological father, we just didn't get along that well. And I, you know, I always had a suspicion of why we didn't get along. A lot of it comes down to biology, I think, and just the, the sort of nature versus nurture aspect of it all. Um, so, so do you mean, do you mean to say like, even as a kid, you kind of had this feeling he wasn't your real dad? Or maybe you couldn't pinpoint <laughs> it to that extent, but you, you knew uh, something was off or? It was like, the best way I describe it is like when you have a magnet and you try to put the positive end to the negative end, or excuse me, the positive and the positive. And they push away or negative from negative <laughs> and they push away. Right. It was just nat. It was just, it was just like this unnatural, natural hmm. effect. Um, when I was growing up, I actually would tell my brother because I look more white than my brother. Um, I, I like, I joked the other day on Facebook uh, that I'm a graham cracker. My wife is a actual cracker because my <laughs> wife is white because I'm just a little bit caramel. I can, I get every once in a while, like if it's in the summer, just in enough to meet that diversity quotient, maybe. Yeah, no, actually, true. Except for, yeah. <laughs> so I was a little bit, enough white looking to work. Like my brother is, I'm not black, but darn close. Like he's very, very dark and he has uh, straight black hair. He looks like if he, when he grows his hair out and him, he and I are doing this winter, like he looks Native American. I mean, out of a book, Native American. Mm. So my dad, but my, our dad who raised us, all white, 100% white. The whitest, one of the whitest guys you'll ever meet. Kind of looks like, uh, do you know the uh, character on the Mountain Dew bottle? Like that guy? That's what he looks like. Old man Tucker, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Like a very cowboy-ish old mountain man. Growing up, I would tell my brother all the time, dad's not your real dad. Like, I'm, 
I'm dad's real son. Like you're not, there's, there's no way that that dad is your real dad because he was so dark. It would just devastate him. It would just devastate him. Um, so <clears throat> tried that, tried doing that for, tried doing, working on the farm for like three or four, like three or four days, maybe even a week, something like that. And I hated it. And we would just butt heads and we would argue and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, so I said, and he said, well, you got to do something. And I go, I agree. Like I, plus I wanted money for school clothes and he was such a cheap ass that, you know, for him, like he would, he would just blow his mind at like jeans or 40 bucks. Like, yeah, jeans are 40 bucks. Like, I don't know what to tell you, bro. It, it, it is what it is. Um, and I was, I was trying to, you know, you're in that teenage sort of mindset of like, I need to look fresh. I was into girls. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like a preppy kid back in the day. It's going to be hard to pick up chicks in the aqua socks, you know? Uh, yeah. Especially when they're falling apart. Right. So, uh, I called his friend up and his friend is, his name is Bruce. And, uh, he was a general contractor and I'd always liked building things cause I grew up with the Legos. Um, grandma would always give me opportunities to like build things. And then I would always be drawing. So there was always that creative sort of creation. I need to, I need to be a maker. I need to be a maker, whatever that means at that point. Called him up and I said, hey, I will. I know you have a construction company. Like, what are you guys doing this summer? And he said, well, we're, we're roofing. And uh, I said, well, I'm looking for a job. Um, I'll do whatever it takes. And he said, sure, you could be our gopher. You can go for this. You can go for that. And uh, you, I'll pay it $7.25 an hour. Um, and then, uh, one, you know, he said, Jeff will pick him up or something like that. My dad had all these buddies because it was his buddy. They all lived in town and they all worked for Bruce. A lot of them did. So it was kind of convenient too. So like I could just, they would pick me up in the morning at like four or five. We'd head to the job site. We tore off and put on 80 roofs that summer. So one a day, we would get there before sunrise, right right at sunrise, tear off the roof, have it off in like two or three hours. And we'd have it back on another three or four. And then we'd be done with the done for the day. It was incredibly exhausting. Uh, it was dirty. Um, and it was, uh, but but I loved every minute of it. Not only the hard work because I want I was a skinny little kid too and I just wanted to get a little bigger. Um, but I really actually liked like uh just the way the the construction guys were. Like there was app there was cat calling that happened. Like it was an alpha male environment, a hundred percent, you can imagine. Um, you know, it may or may not like bum my first cigarette from those guys, uh <laughs> had a first beer from those guys, you know, after work sort of thing. But like it was such an awesome experience um, for a 13 year old. That's all I was 13, 14. I just loved every minute of it. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And then that same guy explained to me at the end of the summer, he goes, I don't know why. I I, I don't know. You know, I I talked. I actually got in touch with him recently again this last year after he saw me on a different podcast. His wife reached out to me. And um, so I, I, I sent him that podcast because I mentioned him on it. And talk about how he was a mentor and everything. It kind of made his life. I couldn't believe it. He was like, you were the only one. He's like, Lance, you were the only one that gave a shit, that like paid attention, that actually un- like wanted to understand how everything worked. Um, so one of the things that he, that he then told me about was like, look, here's how it works. Is like, I'm billing you out of 45 bucks an hour. I pay you $7.25 an hour. And I was like, oh. Oh, he goes, yeah, some of it goes to insurance. Sure. Some of it goes like workman's comp and all that kind of stuff. But he's like, 50% it goes to me. Like the 50% of the 45 goes to me. And that's how I make money. Right. He had more things. He could, he could, he had more freedom, it seemed like. And then it, for me, it just like that one little tiny tr- thing that I understood about billability and in, in a service based environment, I would, it just unlocked everything for me. And then I said, oh my profit. God, profit, profit. Uh, profits okay. Um, this is my way out. And so at first I wanted to be a builder. So then every summer after that, I would go do a different trade, concrete, framing, uh, siding, sheetrock, whatever. You had the sort of forethought even at that age to think, okay, yeah, I've learned this skill, but I shouldn't just then just stick with this skill. I I should expand my skill set from there. That's, that's pretty impressive for a 14 year old. Yeah. And well, and to be fair, it was part of it was to Bruce. Bruce was, he just showed me that because I could, because I would see that, like, I understood that that's how he was a general contractor, one that could manage all these different subs and then also do some of the work himself if he had to, of like understanding all those trades frontwards, backwards, who, who does what task before the others. Like it's so, that's why, you know, with even our construction company now, I'm, I, we didn't really make too much money the first, especially this last year, maybe just maybe like 
5, 10% profit, which is terrible for service. But it was a, it's been an investment in those guys about teaching them the importance of the trade sequence. So that if they're, if they are just even managing drywall, the drywall sub, let's say next week, they're paying attention to what the framers are doing. So, and they know that like what they should be, how, what they should be instructing the framers to do so that the drywallers aren't pissed off and walking off the site right away first day. And that ever, so that everything works, you know, much more in tandem that way, that sort of thing. Um, so I did that for up until I was, so I, I, you know, worked if I started at 13, seven summers, basically, or excuse me, five summers doing all those different kind of trades. At 18, I decided to go to North Dakota State School of Science. Um, I was actually just kind of like a lower B level student in high school because I only went to I went to a very small school. Like the town I grew up in was 500 people, 20 people per class, basically a village. Like it wasn't even an incorporated uh, sit like town, so they didn't even have a tax base. It was kind of like unincorporated in a county sort of thing. But the reason I'm bringing it up is like I hated high school because uh, academically because I couldn't. There was no choice. Like you could not even choose a class. You just, it is what it is. So when I went to uh, North Dakota State School of Science for building construction tech, I was just convinced like, hey, uh, you know, I'm a Native American. So I've applied for these different scholarships. I have a good enough grades to kind of meet that (laughs) diversity quota. Like you were saying, like I took advantage of it. I was one of the smart Native Americans who did it. I would say the majority are not. The majority, so like that whole, the whole idea of um, affirmative action is uh, it's a good idea on its face in the sense of if if the minorities actually took advantage of it, great, but they don't. And I'm a testament to tell you that. For, for anybody who's screaming into the radio right now listening to this or their headphones, like, I, trust me, I grew up with Native Americans. I, the majority of my, of my friends from my hometown are Native Americans, um, mixed race, and I'm one of the very, very few out of hundreds and thousands of, of, of them that actually took advantage of and made something for themselves. So that's, you know. it's available to anybody. So, so why do you think that like, that's not taken advantage of? Is it, is it like a shame thing or is it, is a lack of information about it? Like, why, do, why do you think like you are one of the only lack, people that you know? A uh, lack of initiative. It's easier to just fall back on the free money that's already there anyway, or the, the free mm. services that are already there. It's like if you stay home, if I stayed home in Trenton, North Dakota right now, um, I would I could I could I could be saving 600 bucks a month or excuse me, actually more than that now, $800 a month instead of paying into a private health share account. Because the health service is free, like that's huge. Like, why would I ever leave? Like, why would I why would I I try to why would I try to go and do anything beyond that if the default is already there? So, like, that's a problem with the socialism in these Native American communities is it really does just hold you back because you are like, ah, it's pretty nice here in the sense of I don't have to put much effort out, right? People, humans want the least passive resistance. Like that's just the natural state. Of do you man. think there is intention behind that? Do you think, or do you think that's just a sort of a... Yes and an, yes, both. Yes and no. Like I think there is an evil attention. Sure. I think there are like, why? There's probably enough people in the room when it was voted on or when these policies were starting to take place to where there were sort of these people just going, oh, I, I know what this is going to do in the end. So, yeah, I'm going to vote yes for this. But then there's always the other people who oh, it was good intention that they had, but it's an unintended consequence in the end as a whole, for sure. If that makes cool. sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So how did how did you sort of take that entrepreneurial spirit that you had uh, going from sort of skill to skill to skill. And when did you take that into just into actually starting your own business? So enough people had to piss me off um, to give me the fuel to want to do it. So a couple of weeks ago, I picked up a uh, Marcus Aurelius's book and reading, I was reading it for a different reason. Um, It was kind of like a personal reason. I was trying to figure out how to fight less with my wife and uh, be less reactionary and just kind of agree and do all these things or whatever. But in reading that book, I realized... It is easier was, when you just agree. I will say that. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, what I realized, though, through reading that was like, oh, I was already practicing a form of stoicism. And when, you know, the reason why I went to school, people pissed me off in high school and said, well, you're not going to, this kid's not going to amount to anything. Kind of had the Michael Jordan chip on my shoulder. So uh, 
one summer after I came back, uh, the first summer I came back from trade school, I tried to go work for another uh, contractor again and learn a different trade. And this one was going to be steel framing. I hadn't done any light gauge steel framing. And this guy just pissed me off to no end uh, because there's something about like, I don't do this with my workers. I, I have two carpenters right now for our construction firm. And I give them as much freedom as they feel comfortable doing with a task, right? We'll watch YouTube videos. I'll show them in person how to do things. But for some reason, when I was growing up, it was not that way. It was just like, nope, you got to do this for 10 years before I trust you to frame out a door or something like that. Um, so I started butting heads with this guy. Did not like him at all. And uh, that's when I put out my first ad. So I put out an ad and I, I kind of wrote it like a personal ad. I said, hey, young, smart, uh, sober. I always put sober because uh, that's a you problem. You have to really trade. clarify that in that community, huh? You really do, yep. But what happens is, is like, uh, then I ended up getting this customer. And the first thing I did was I built uh, just a set of steps for her. And she really liked it. And then she said, hey, you know what? I have, an, I have a house out in the country as well. And I, I'm an artist and I want to, I need to redo this one bedroom and turn it into an art studio. So that was my first like real construction um, client project and everything like that. And then every, everything else was like history from there in terms of, I, I, could, I figured out how to put out an ad. I figured, and then I got referrals um, and that sort of thing. Um, but then after I finished tech school, you know, the, the whole idea with tech school was building construction tech was to be a general contractor. And, but all of a sudden I was like finding myself thriving in tech school, in school in general for the first time, like almost a straight A student, uh, which op opened up all, all kinds of opportunities for other scholarships. And I figured out actually how to monetize myself. Like I was getting paid. Eh, it wasn't that much. But it was only like back in the day, like as a college student, like 25, 30,000 a year after school was already paid for. And so I found myself looking at the blueprints and they were actual blueprints even back then um, on this house we were building in tech school at the end. And I was like, well, why did they draw it like that? Like, I want to know. And it sort of was playing on this whole, hey, I've learned all the trades. Like what, like, what if I could also design the buildings too? Like if I could design them plus build them and then eventually develop them, like I will make 3x the money of a builder, 3x the money of an architect, 3x the money as a, even a developer. Um, and then I'll be even more free. The whole idea is like never to hopefully have to worry about money. So I applied to North Dakota State University Architecture School. Um, it's competitive. So you get in there and then you go from 350 students the first year down to 50. Uh, it's based on GPA and portfolio and everything like that. Again, figured out how to monetize myself. Uh, I, I took advantage of it's called a cultural diversity tuition waiver. So there you go. Um, found myself. You know, to be you know, there's some libertarians out there screeching and screaming away right now. Now at this stuff, you know, taking taking the state money or what have you. Um, obviously, this is before you were even thinking along those lines. But like, do you run into this now? I'm still having run in those circles. Do people ever give you shit for for taking advantage of that sort of thing? No, because I <laughs> there's. Murray Rothbard at least has some things right. I think he has a lot of things right. Um, even, uh, what's her name? Ayn Rand said this, made the same argument for Social Security. She's like, look, I already paid for it. Why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I take yeah. that money back out? Like, what are you going to do? Just not, part, not take advantage of the system that is taking it? No, I'm going like, to keep myself off. in a worse position just to please, <laughs> to please some people that might not like it. That's what yeah. I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then the, the worst, the worst, you know, the leftist politicians, like they, they actually do it even better than everybody else. Like, so... It's it's if you're if you aren't if you don't like it, it would be like the if the if the it's like the analogy of the frog in the boiling pot of water, except does the frog see that there's actually like sort of a raft in the, in the water, right? So a you're a frog staircase, maybe to, something to like it. that. Right. Right. So uh, no, but the guy that made the pot built the staircase and that guy is a piece of shit and the pot shouldn't even exist. So I'm not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. No one's free from sin. I think that's the other big thing, too, is I always try to say, like, no one is free from sin in this world. You know what I mean? Um, so, like, even the arguments when, that people give against Elon Musk uh, in the libertarian circles drove me nuts because I'm like, 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 you guys want to bitch about these roads all day long. But like, how'd you get to work? Oh, through through like the roads that were, you know, the money was stolen from you and built all the all the shitty roads and all that stuff. So anyway, that that's I let it roll off my back because I like to say, like, well, I'm actually one of the only real libertarians anyway, because I'm the one building the roads. Like how many builds, how many roads have you built? <laughs> and I'm serious. Like I actually yeah. build the physical roads. Um, 
So finished out graduate uh, architecture school, graduated at the top of the class. And then here's the next person who pissed me off. And this is why it matters. <laughs> I uh, graduated at the top of the class. My business partner did as well. Al, his name is Al Gore. He co-hosts our show inside the firm podcast with me. And we both went our separate ways um, with the idea that maybe in 10 years, we'll come back together and start an architecture firm. We were like uh, this power duo in college because we would, there was these competitions you would do and we won the skyscraper competition. Um, we were in separate studios as, as uh, graduate students and just felt like the, the best way we're going to do, do the best thesis projects is if we move our desks closer together again. Best friends at all levels and all of that. And so I went to Boulder. Uh, well, I can, I can only afford to live in Longmont, but I went to, I worked in Boulder, uh, Longmont, Colorado. And then my business partner, Al, went to New York City. And he, he used to work for, he went to, he got an internship with uh, Daniel Liebskin. Daniel Liebskin is, for anybody who doesn't know who that is, he is the architect um, who did the, the Holocaust Museum in Germany, that really famous one. He did the Denver Art Museum. And most notably, he did the first redesign of the World Trade Center 1, which never got built, but he was the architect for that originally, the rebuild after 9-11. Um, so it's kind so, of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. Huge deal to get that uh, internship. It was 2008. And then everybody knows what happened in 2009. So, and then what happened, you know, just the, the Great Recession happened. Uh, the financial markets completely melted down, all from the housing market. Well, architects and builders do housing. And so we suffered the most, actually. The, the uh, unemployment rate in the architecture community was 50%. 50%. And so uh, graduating at the top of the class like that and getting, I, I got a very good internship, too. I, the internship I was working on in with was it was formerly Studio HT was the firm, and it was run by two guys, Brad Thomas at Christopher Hare, and but they didn't know shit about business. They were just awful about business. The architects have a problem with being good business people instead of just trying to be good artists. They really think like they're selling their soul or selling out if it if it turns into a business for them, and it can't coexist together. It's like one or the other. Either your business and your pure commodity and just doing Taco John's all day to them, or you're like Studio Daniel Liebskin or Studio HD and doing very high-end art style architecture. The problem with that is, is that then I got laid off. And that was completely devastating because these guys were catering towards the top 1%. And I at that point, it's probably like the 0.1%. And even those folks didn't have money to spend you know, during the Great Recession. So they did not have a variety and a diversity of kind of work typologies. You know, they weren't doing like, like, for instance, we do uh, single family, multifamily, commercial, industrial. We also have a podcast that we make money off of. Uh, we have real estate investments. We are developers. We are also builders. Like it's going to take a, it, it would take a great recession, 2X, 5X in this next turnaround. For us to, and plus they paid themselves way too much and didn't have a big cash reserve savings or anything like that. They had no plan. They weren't even advertising. So those guys really pissed me off. And so what I ended up doing is uh, I knew I was going to get laid off. Um, so leading up to that, I, you know, Alex and I were still talking. He was in New York and I got laid off before him and I just could feel it coming because, you know, like there's no like, what am I doing? I'm working on the same house for six months. That's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. I know what the fees are. And uh, so I started doing all the, I noticed at that point too, architecture was, the community was switching from AutoCAD, which is just 2D lines on a computer screen over to this 3D type of uh, modeling software called Revit. And so one of the things when they were transitioning from 2D to 3D that they were missing was all of these components that needed to be translated from 2D to 3D. And it was, a lot of it was furniture and stuff like that. Um, so I started modeling that stuff on a, I would wake up at five before I would go to Boulder to go to work. And for at least an hour in the morning, all by myself at my home office, I would model, I would model all these models. And I started uploading them to a site called Turbo Squid. And uh, I got noticed because I was, I was modeling the most out of anybody in the world at that point. I got noticed by their, their team who was then starting to work with these building product manufacturers like windows, doors, all stuff like that, components, you know, that people make to go into buildings. And they said, hey, we have a big client who is um, wanting us to find talent 
to make these things. So I kept in touch with them for three or four months, got laid off, still kept in touch with those people. When I got laid off, I had also had Craigslist ads ready to go. And Craigslist actually used to be a lot. I th- I feel like it was a lot better um, in, in this one particular sense. When you when you put up advertisements on Craigslist back in the day, you could do it. For, you could still you could do it for free. Number one and number two, though, you could write just a little bit of code, like HTML code, and you could put images in your ads. So I was out competing all of these grumpy old uh, drunk and high contractors and and uh, handymen. Because I had, I, I did the same kind of write up that I did like a decade before that, you know, young, smart, sober, um, strong, bad. And I've whatever. got pictures. And here's the pictures. And so I got all these calls from these housewives in uh, Boulder, which Boulder was kind of recession proof um, back at, during that great recession in the sense of like housing prices only, it was like a 1% dip. People still had enough money. They were still high earners. Tech never took a recession during then. And that we, we are kind of like the Silicon Valley of the, uh, the, the Midwest, so to speak, in, in Boulder, Boulder County. Got all, the, got all this kind of handyman work, work for cash, never took an unemployment check. So that's one of the arguments I make back to libertarians, too, is they go like, look, hey, I never took an unemployment check the whole time. I could have. I could have done it. Never did. And then TurboSquid finally came online. And did I got you not take that clients. just because th- you, did you feel like, I, I don't think it was like a moral thing for you, I think, but was it more this like, you didn't want that to even weigh you down? Or, both of or it. Have, yeah. Bo- ex- both of those things. First, the base was exactly that, was this, mora- was this, I don't want it to weigh me down. I don't want the extra paperwork. You got to prove all this. Like, you got to prove like yeah, that I'm applying to these things. And it's like, and I hate taxes. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to work for cash. Like, and I did, I worked for cash and I was actually ended up making more money doing those gigs, you know, and I needed the cash right away too, because I wasn't about to pick up my family and move back to North Dakota. Colorado is beautiful. Despite its politics, like it is an amazing place. The weather is fantastic. Um, you know, like we can get 70 degree days in February, in January, believe it or not. And, uh, it's nice and dry. I don't do well with humidity back to the mosquitoes sort of thing. Right. Um, so it was, it was all, it was all of that kind of all in one. Then through those ads and those, those people then I started to get a little bit of architecture work. And, um, so I had, a, I had all this modeling work. I ended up getting a house through a connection down in Colorado Springs. I actually ended up getting a clinic through that connection and bringing that work all the way back to the shitty firm that, that, uh, fired me or laid me off. And I had to do that because like I was unlicensed at that time. And there's only, you, you have to be careful about what you can do. Like, I couldn't even use the word architect. I, w- I could just say, like, residential drafter or designer to try to stay under the radar of Colorado and all of that. So, like, when I got the clinic, I actually had to call the old firm up. I say, hey, I got a lead on a clinic. Um, maybe we can split the money. I'll work under you guys. You guys will be the prime. I will just be the drafts, drafts person sort of thing um, and, and get that going. So that was from from 2010 to 2013. It was Alex and I navigating this world where we can't call ourselves architects. We are still attracting architectural work because of the ads we have on Craigslist. You know, um, we're out competing um, the other architects, and uh, and then eventually in 2013 the economy started to take off a little bit, and we started to get um, bigger, better clients. We had we gained some mentors along the way um, because you can do in Colorado you can do a house of thirteen thousand square feet or under as an unlicensed architect as a designer, and then we you have to get all these points too, right? So you have to get all these points so that you can eventually get licensed and take these seven excruciating tests. And so we did that between 13, 2013 and twenty fifteen, and then and then after that, then we just kind of turned the whole faucet on, and we could actually outwardly. Uh, advertise and um, call ourselves architects. And since then, it has been, um, I wouldn't say a hockey stick growth, but it's certainly been maybe at like a 45 degree, 60 degree angle in terms of uh, just overall revenue, uh, staff, and then what we've done since then. And to kind of tie the whole the whole thing together about doing all these trades, um, being just this person who is trying to make money at every every turn so it buys me more freedom and maneuverability on the chessboard of life 
is uh, in 2014, um, my business, we had uh, 2013, uh, I remember we got this duplex and it was down in Golden, Colorado. So Alex and I were, were celebrating by, we're going to go to Boulder and we're going to, uh, we're going to go to a, like a burger shop or something like that. Something simple. We we're driving back from Boulder, back to the apartment where that's where Alex, that's where we had our first office was his apartment. And uh, we call up our friend Blake and we told Blake, um, we're like, hey, what's going on? He's like, I hate my job. He was an architect too up in South Dakota. He's like, I hate my job. He's like, I just want to build a tiny house and just take photographs and just drive around. And I go, why don't you do that? You got no kids. I had two kids at that point. You got no kids. You got no wife. How much money do you got? He's like, I got about 25K in my account. We're like, perfect. That's all you need. And so we, <laughs> Alex and that's I, a, we, that's a great place to be in at that, at that point in life. Like if you don't have a, like a family yet, like you have so gonna... much freedom to take risks. Like you, your risks. Oh, like, okay. Worst case. Fine. You go live on a friend's couch. If you, if you get broke, like you're not, you can't risk, take that same risk when you have the wife and kids. Like you're not going to say, all right, maybe we'll just go sleep on a, you're not yeah. going to do that. But but you're you're so much you're so free at that point, man. That is the time to take those risks. And if you aren't, I just don't. I think you're wasting your life. Like, what are you doing with your life? Don't live a life like that, and then have a life of regret in your. And 40s. you can still it's take terrible. risks when you have a family, of course, but not to yeah. the same extent as you can in that situation you described. Right. I mean, you would be like risking literally not just being around. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I I agree. So uh, we got to the apartment that night. And, uh, our apartments, I guess I lived right kitty corner to him downstairs and he lived upstairs. And, uh, I, we, I bought the, we, we bought a bon- do- domain name on the web and it was blakesinyhouse.com. And we made a quick little landing page and stuff. And then we published it and then we emailed him in the morning. We go, look, we're doing it. Thinking we could like push him to do it. And he went along with it for about a year. And we teamed up with another, uh, uh gal that we graduated with. Her name is Sarah. And we come up, came up with all these designs. And this was, remember, so this was like post, um, it, this was post, but still the recession was very deep. I mean, it really was a couple years, especially in some certain markets. And, uh, but why, why I'm saying that is because then the tiny house movement kind of exploded during then because people were reacting to this overloaded and overheated housing market and they were like what are we doing like do we actually need these mcmansions these large mortgages and all of that so organically we would get like over a hundred visits in that website um every day i mean it just became overwhelming at some point we would get calls from tv producers um cbs hgtv nbc who were looking for people that wanted to build tiny houses and then they wanted to start these reality shows about them that's when reality tv was also kind of hitting, you know, starting to crescendo. And uh, so my business partner, um, in 2014, he, him, him and his fiance at that time, they went down to the Denver house show, house and garden show or something like that. And there was a HGTV was there. And they said, uh, Al was like, they said, hey, we're looking for, there was a tiny, they had a tiny house. They were showcasing a tiny house. And I was like, oh yeah, we, we've been thinking about, we've been thinking about building one for a couple of years now. And uh, he showed him the website and stuff. And, and they go, oh, well, you guys are going to build it? And he's like, yeah, we're going to build it. And then he signed up and he came back to the, on the, into the office on Monday. He goes, by the way, I signed us up. We're going to build a tiny house. We have a, a phone call with HGTV at like noon today. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I usually, like if Al has a good idea and I have a good idea, we are in tune enough now. We've, we've Since we're best friends and all, you know, we just had know each other inside and out. Like we know when to run with the other person's idea and just you know, amplify it. So I said, sure, let's, let's do it. So we had a really good interview with them. We, then we scrambled and got some financing together to bought, to get the materials so we could buy, we could build it and shot with HGTV for a couple months. And then, um, if people want to look it up, it's season one, episode 13. If you just Googled Alex and Lance's, uh, tiny folding house, it's on the uh, tiny house, big living. And oh, so, so this is not the biggest show you've been on. <laughs> I thought you were hitting the big time and it yeah, turns yeah, out yeah, you're already right. big well time. in the podcast circuit, Mark. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so that was really cool. And it ended up giving us like this. We didn't get paid. You don't, you do not get paid to be on HGTV. You get exposure. <laughs> and so what we got was this amazing exposure. Every two weeks we were on HGTV. Every and they would and we had the coolest tiny house and then they, that tiny house ended up winning an international architecture award 
We went to New York. We accepted the award. It was a red carpet type of stuff. And then a year later, Subaru saw it. And Subaru, um, they sponsor this thing called Winterfest in Colorado. And they work with this company that puts on events. And uh, Al gets a call one day and he goes, hey, I just got a phone with Subaru and they want us to build two more of these. And, but they want them to be like the tiny house we built, but on steroids. They want it to be, because this tiny house was, if you go to our website and you go look up, uh, you go to f9productions.com and look up Atlas, Atlas Tiny House. It's, it was, the, the tiny houses at that time were like shitty cabins on wheels. You know, it was sort of this, like, I get what you're trying to do, uh, but why are you guys going into nature you're just recreating an RV and an RV sucks because an RV doesn't you know, like you get a little portal window. Like you have to go outside to be in nature, but yeah, you're in nature. Like, what are you doing exactly? You know, with, with that experience, ours had a huge glass wall, giant glass wall. I mean, you are felt like you were sleeping outside. It had a foldable deck, a foldable awning. Um, it collected rainwater. It had solar panels on it. Uh, it was super modern. That's why I won all these awards and stuff. But Subaru saw it and they were just like, no one else is doing this. We can't do this. We got to hire these guys to do this because we want to take our two and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make them travel around the United States for Winterfest. So they would go to all these ski resorts like Breckenridge Vale, all the way over to the East coast, all those ones and stuff like that. And Al was like, first I said, look, Al, this was what 2015. Yeah. So I had, I was, I was engaged with my second wife. Um, She has two kids. I had two kids huge family for modern standards. Al uh, was getting ready to have his first kid. And I was like, look, bud, plus I was building my, I was uh, just in the middle of designing and building my house with my, that, that my current wife, who I was just engaged to at that time. It was a lot. It was a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is Al. That was, that was so hard to build. Like that was so hard. We invented architecture. I mean, there was no one else was making a foldable tiny house one that could like transform the whole idea was like let's make it a transformer and he goes well what if i tell them this number and i go if they go for that number i will build it no problem and they didn't even blink so we gave them a very high fee we we successfully built the two houses and we had enough profit from that we killed ourselves like we always do in every build but we had enough profit to where we find we were like okay like, are we going to buy a piece of land? We've always wanted to be developers because that's where you make the real money. That's where you get the real clout is if you can be a, if you can withstand, you know, the government bureaucracy and the public, uh, the public disdain for developers is like, you can become, you can become truly free in that kind of way. So we bought a third of an acre and then uh, in North Longmont where we were already working anyway and moved out of our rental eventually um, you know, the, the, the space we were leasing for our office and, uh, we built a sixplex and a triplex and where I'm sitting right now, where everybody can see the background, I'm actually sitting in the mezzanine of the building that I own. Um, the lower floor houses our construction company, the upper floor is where all the architects are. And then behind me, I own two of the rentals. Uh, so now I'm, I'm a real estate investor in that All sense. this ultimately coming from just a 13 year old kid who took a stab at roofing essentially what was the beginning of this whole process for you. And I think like, I do want to move on and get into uh, a little bit of the story about your dad before we wrap up the main show here. But I, I think like one of the big lessons you can see through this whole story that you're laying out here is you don't have to have it all figured out. In fact, it's impossible to have it all figured out in the beginning. You just need to act because that's, that's what I notice every step of your story here is that you never really look. Okay. You have this, idea to to learn roofing and then you learn another trade another trade but you never got complacent at any of these steps even today i'm sure you're not complacent with where you are here you're always looking for that next big thing but you're not letting the fact that you don't have that that let next big thing figured out you don't have it mapped out you're not letting that stop you from moving on to that next big thing if that, if that makes sense that, i that's, think that's, that's a, what i get from this 100 percent. yeah i think that's exactly why why um, i know your audience is oh, there's a lot of libertarians so this is just to, to them this is what's holding well, you anybody back. who's stuck around with me this long. They're not going to be scared off anymore. So it's yeah, <laughs> but this is what's holding you back or anybody in that matter for like, if you have read 10 books on business, it's going to be that much harder for you to start your business rather than just mm-hmm. starting the business, then reading the books. Absolutely. It, it just, every single time it goes into that, like you can't, you just got to take the fear, rip the bandaid off, rip the damn bandaid off. 
And there will That's be what I have time. to tell podcast clients as well. You know, they come in, they, I want to have it all figured out, all figured out. I'm like, you can take a hundred podcast courses, but it kind of in the same way, it's almost like at some point, at least in the beginning, the more information you're taking in, the more it's going to stop you from starting because you feel so overwhelmed. And well, I got to figure these nine things out and, and these 10 things out, but you actually don't, you can start with the shitty thing or the semi shitty thing. Yeah. Um, man, I mean, don't start too shitty, get some things figured out, <laughs> but then just do it. Because you're Just only going to get better by actually and be it. consistent. Yeah. And be consistent. Yeah. Like with podcasting, that's a, that's one of the biggest things is like, uh, the most of them fail because they just don't, they don't stick to, I, I'm, uh, you know, do one a week, one a month, like whatever your schedule is. Like, I don't care if it's shitty content, you got to get it out there. You'll work through that shitty content. Eventually you just have good content no matter what, because you are a professional. I mean, you do the 10,000 hours thing. And the, the other thing I would say too, is like, I've oh, two things. One, I mean, for me, being being a practicing catholic and 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 you know a, 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 your brother in christ is like i feel like i am bulletproof from the point of being in god's grace so like when i was at balls deep in our development and ha- was staring down the barrel of a 3 million dollar uh hard money loan to get this done uh at my like 80th day working in a row it was every day talking to God and asking to be in the grace. And every single time it's worked out in my life, every single time it's worked out in my life to make sure I have that kind of relationship um, going. And it just it just levels you up. The other thing is at every yeah, there's turn, something there that because I know there's probably people of various, not probably definitely people of various religious beliefs um, ranging from just different religions or just pure atheism or, or whatever it might be who might scoff at that or what have you. But I mean, it, this is a consistent thing um, from, from a lot of people I've met and talked to and my own experiences over the years. It almost doesn't matter what you're, you're, you're behind, you know, what the actual beliefs are. But if you, if you consistently sort of put, put the right intention out there, um, whether it's really God talking to you back to back to you and, and helping guide you, or whether it's just you putting the right energy and spirit yeah. into that, having that center and having that focus is absolutely essential wherever you may get it from. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. The second, the second thing is, is I have always felt like I get it. I either get it done at the very last minute or it's like right by the last second. And so like, there is no breathing room and that's okay. It's, 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 it's like the opposite end of ripping the bandaid off. Like, okay, I've ripped the bandaid off. It just, now the wound healed just in time. And I like the perfect example with the development that the development was we had, we had all the units sold and then, uh, but the margins were so thin, like our margins were like 7%. That's awful for a developer, but it was our first development. We learned a lot. We leveled up. It's paid dividends in, you know, in so many different ways, but the last minute lesson here was we had all of them sold except for, except for one. And the one was, I woke up one morning, we were like, uh, a week away from finishing the project and it did the amount of work. I'm not joking with the 80 days in a row. It was 80 days of physical labor for me in a row. My wife will attest that I've said it multiple times on our show. You can actually go the episode on our show that talks about this is don't go chasing waterfalls because I opened up the door of one of the condos and it was a waterfall. So there was a pipe that burst on the upper floor. We were a week away from finishing this thing and just like being able to breathe and get out of the whole thing um, and be done with it and, and kind of out of this sort of purgatory that we created on earth. And that condo flooded, that buyer backed out. And then we had to negotiate with our lender and we had to go back to insurance and get this you know insurance thing going to reconstruct it and everything like that. We sold, we finally sold that, that unit uh, three months later after we closed. We sold it on the day the market was the highest right before the pandemic hit. And then the, and then the market crashed. So if you go look at that, like in March, I think it was like 14th or something like that. On that high, we sold the, the Dow, the highest market was at in March in, in 2020. And the next day, so like, it's just Providence all day long for me. Wow. Wow. Well, Lance, I, I do want to get into the story about your dad, but I, I'm thinking maybe we'll just tease that a little bit and save the, the juicy details for the smoke filled room for the bonus segment since we are kind of running up on our time here. So why don't you kind of just tease that a little bit? Tell us sort of the basics of what happened and we'll get into the details uh, in the bonus show and then uh, you know, we'll wrap things up here. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I'm not sure how to tease it other than uh, my mother. I'll, I'll tease it. Lance Meets is real bad. <laughs> Everybody, <laughs> tune in to hear what. Tune in to hear how. There you go. At the ripe old age of 33, I'm 39 now. So, 
Wow. Wow. And, and that does tie in a little bit as we'll get into in the bonus show uh, into sort of your, your religious journey at well. So, so if you want to hear all of that, stay tuned. Uh, of course, subscribers on Rockfin, Patreon, subscribe star, you will all get the, the full episode of this program. But before then, Lance, we'll wrap up here. Why don't you just let everybody know how they can, of course, uh, find your company. Hey, maybe they're looking to have a house built or another tiny house or something, but uh, also your podcast and feel free to plug away on anything else you got going on. Uh, yeah, follow us. We're very active on, on LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at, at F9 Productions. That is, it's the letter F, the number nine, the word productions. That's our architecture company. You can even sign up on our website for our newsletter. Keep in touch that way. And then uh, check out my fishing channel. Uh, I have a fishing channel. I'm actually technically a professional fisherman at this point since I get paid to do it. Uh, you could be on YouTube, Fishing with Lance. And then last but not least, our, uh, you can follow our whole journey of our entrepreneurial journey. We started started episode zero at insidethefirmpodcast.com. And we talk about from the day we ha- we started the firm all the way up until now, we bring you inside the firm, pun intended. All right. Well, Lance Psycho, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, we'll get into more of those juicy t- details. You're going to join me in the smoke-filled room in just a minute. But thanks for coming on. Thanks. All right, gang, that does it for my discussion with Lance Psycho. Or does it? It doesn't really do it because you can find even more. You can get the full story about how Lance reconnected with his father. And there is just so much within that that we learned um, about Lance and about his story that is just is just mind blowing at the end. And it really does tie in uh, to his his kind of religious rebirth along the way. Uh, so you can get that full, complete story over there in the premium version in the smoke filled room segment, which is part of the extended premium versions of all these episodes, which are available on several ways. You can get them over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Mark Claire show, subscribe star, subscribe star.com slash. I think it's the Mark Claire show. There might be dashes there. You can figure it out. And of course at Rockfin, you can find me the Mark Claire show where all of these episodes are released in their extended complete format. Um, usually a few weeks ahead of time, if not a full month, as was the case with uh, some of these early episodes here. So patrons, Rockfin supporters, you guys have access to the full story. One of those great patrons, those great supporters I'm going to tell you about. He is my very first lucky 77 member. His name is Jared Wall, and he runs a great website for getting THC products, legal products, mind you, because they are Delta 8 THC. Uh, He would not send you anything that was not legal. Don't you worry about that. Um, It is legal in most states, so go ahead over to the THCHempspot.com. That's, I said the, it's the, I'm saying that as not part of the URL. See, this is the hard thing about th- things not being typed out. You'll, you'll find all this stuff in the show notes on whatever platform you listen to. But have, head over to THCHempspot.com. And if the wide array of products there was not enough for you to entice you, they have some great gummies, some vapes, some flour, whatever it is you're looking for, you're going to be enticed by this little discount. You're going to get 15% off, but you got to complete a little task first. You got to spell my name right. My first name, Mark, M-A-R-C. You use discount code Mark, M-A-R-C. You get 15% off your entire order from my man, the lucky 77, the premier lucky 77 himself, Jared Wall. Of course, you can find the tiers. If you want one of these tiered subscriptions, of course, Jared, every month, he gets to choose between uh, four weeks of ads on the show, four weeks of me mentioning his product, an incredible deal by any podcasting standard, or he gets a one-on-one consultation with me. So this month, he is choosing to do the ad, send you over to the Hempspot, and he's being nice, tossing in a promo code for you. Again, that's promo code, code Mark, 15% off. You can find those tiers over at Patreon, over at Subscribestar. Uh, Rockfin, you don't get the tiers, you just get all the extra content by subscribing to me for 10 bucks a month. But the awesome thing about Rockfin, if you subscribe to me, you get all sorts of other creators. You also get access to premium content from my guest next week, Sam Tripoli, the OG of Conspiracy Podcast. Maybe he's not the OG. That might be Greg Carlwood, but he's he's right up there um, with one of the greatest conspiracy podcasts out there. Um, a guy I've really whose content I've really enjoyed over the years. Sam Tripoli will be my guest. You can listen or watch that full interview right now. Rockfin, Patreon, Subscribestar, support me any way you like. No matter how you do it, you'll be able to check out that full extended interview with Sam Tripoli as well. You can also check out my interview 
in two weeks, which will is already available as well with Jim Bob from the great Made by Jim Bob channel. Jim Bob does hilarious memes and cartooning and does some incredible live streams on his channel. I had an amazing conversation with him again for as little as well as little as eight bucks a month on Patreon or Subscribestar, 10 bucks a month on Rockfin, but then you get all of their content and all of the other content on there as well. I just give you guys the options. I'm happy to get your support in any way. And if I can't get your financial support, if you can't make it work, that's okay. What I ask you to do is share the show, tell your friends about the show. I'm really trying to grow something from the ground up here and I can use your help doing it. And of course, those five-star ratings and those great reviews on Apple Podcasts specifically is still the best place for the algos, for those algorithms to help get this show up there when people are searching around for various topics. So please, any way you can help me, even if it's just kind words of encouragement, I really would support that. Find all the links again over at markclair.com. That's M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R-R. Blah, I can't even spell my own name. M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R. Markclair.com. That's all I got this week. Until next time, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs>